Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, November 25th, we are studying Amos chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. The prophet brings to conclusion his preaching of judgment against Israel, and he does it in a way that's quite similar to his beginning. He once again brings up foreign nations as a reminder to Israel that they have believed and behaved no differently, and so they justly fall under the Lord's condemnation. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz is the Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor. It's good to be here. Pastor Agrotowitz, as we get started this morning, give us some some context in the book of Amos in chapter 9, whatever's going to be helpful to us as we dig into the words today. Sure. I mean, in short, Israel's in a lot of trouble. By the time the reader gets to chapter 9, the Holy Spirit, through his prophet Amos, has done a very clear job laying out the sins of God's people. And these sins, you know, come about in a variety of ways, but basically it results in this. The people of God, Israel, particularly the northern kingdom when I say Israel, they have been living in impenitence for quite some time, avoiding the voice of God's prophets and therefore avoiding, rejecting the word of God. Even the Lord has warned them repeatedly, and now judgment is coming. A couple of things to bear in mind, when we come into chapter 9, uh, when I said Israel, um, this, this can sometimes confuse people, so I make a note to address this when teaching the Old Testament, that when we say Israel, you do have to watch the context, because sometimes when we say Israel, we mean just the North Kingdom, once the kingdom is divided post-Solomon's reign. So, brief little sketch of the history here, after Solomon, the kingdom will divide between two kings, a Jeroboam, son of uh, Nevat, and then a Rehoboam. Rehoboam takes the southern kingdom. Jeroboam, son of Nevat, he will take the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom is referred to Judah. And here in the book of Amos, the main target, not the only one, but the main one in his preaching is going to be this northern kingdom, Israel. And the, the landscape of Israel right now looks like this. The nation is doing pretty well. Um, he, Amos is ruling under, he, he kind of rules in the reign of, of two kings, towards the end of Uzziah, and then in the beginning of another king called Jeroboam, and that Jeroboam is the son of Joash. So he's going to kind of overlap a couple of kingships. And Things aren't too bad. You might what you you would maybe call they are they are high on the hog. They've got things made in the shade. They feel very very comfortable economically, uh, by terms of military might. They're not doing too bad, and you can see in the text that they're living luxuriously. However, this luxury is coming at the cost of other people. We can maybe talk about that more in a little bit. But this nation, you know, as I said, they're high on the hog. 
they're living in the land of milk and honey. But what does that do to people? Well, it makes them complacent. They have what they need. So what need is there for God and his word? When I've got money, I've got opulent living all around me, maybe some servants. You know, why do I need to go to church? And maybe it's a little soon in this interview to bring it up, but it's kind of like where we live now here in the United States, a very prosperous land. Many things come our way. God is a tremendous giver of gifts, but um, any pastor worth his salt can look around and see there is some complacency, laziness, and as always, you know, too many people not taking the Word of God seriously. That's how Israel, this northern kingdom, is behaving right now. And Amos will give some descriptions that we can get into, but Israel's in trouble. She's living in impenitence, not listening very comfortable where she's at, but judgment is coming. It's on the horizon, and would that the people would wake up and see this coming, and that's Amos' task. He's trying to get the people to wake up. Sadly, we know the end of the story. They don't, but Amos sure is trying as God's prophet. Mm. So is, I mean, would would you say then that chapter nine and and particularly these last verses because you know you you drew the straw that you you almost got verses eleven through fifteen that everyone wants to talk about but but you you just didn't quite Ooh. get it Pastor Agradowitz so <laughs> so so I mean but is but is this is this then the climax of Amos's preaching of judgment that that last gasp effort to get the people to wake up is that what we're looking at today. Oh, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, leading into nine, Amos is not a long book. Amos has some challenging passages, but any common average reader of Holy Writ can read Amos and hear that this uh, shepherd or sheep breeder, depending how you want to translate it, who is no um, uh, prophet's son, he doesn't come from a prophetic line, He's a very intelligent, a very good writer, and he lays out a very convincing case leading up to chapter 9, describing the condition and what is coming down the pipe. But yes, in agreement with what you're saying, I think it is fair to say 9 is climactic in many ways. It begins with God saying judgment is going to come, the thresholds, the foundational things are going to shake, he's going to strike, the kingdom is going to collapse. And so beginning at verse in chapter 9, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And then he goes on in verse 2 forward to make it very clear that the ones worthy of judgment to eternal condemnation, they cannot escape. They can go to hell They can go to the bottom of the sea, but God will find them. And this is a mark of the sinful condition to think God doesn't see what I'm doing or the wrath, whatever this stuff is about wrath, it's not going to fall upon me. I'm okay. No need to listen to the word of God. In other words, the unbeliever, the person, the fool who says there is no God, does not fear God, does not fear wrath, and that's how he or she is living. And to think, though, that you can escape the wrath or get out from under his law or say the law doesn't exist and deny it, that does not mean that the law is suddenly null and void because you say so. It's not. It convicts. It accuses. 
and the sinner merits the wrath of God, should such sin not be atoned for by the blood of Christ, what I mean by that is Christ, of course, has died for the entire world and all people, but I'm talking about the one who rejects that universal atonement, that objective gift to say, no, I don't want it. That's who Amos is dealing with here in impenitent Israel, and the people living in that state, the state of unbelief and rejection, they can't escape. And God makes it very clear, wherever you go, I'm going to find you. If you go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. That's verse 4. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So it's a bad situation. And that's how 9 begins. Judgment, and you cannot escape the judgment. Everybody will stand before God. There will be sheep and there will be goats. Then God goes on, leading up to the passage that we're talking about, uh, verse 7 onward. He he goes on to talk about uh, the doctrine of creation. So after God lays out judgment is coming, in verse 5, Lord God of hosts, who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, who founds its vault upon the earth, who calls for water of the sea, and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. There you're getting the doctrine of creation. God controls the wind and the waves. He tells the waters where to go. He calls upon the waters of the sea and so forth. Creation is always, it's always in his hands. And so that's important to bear in mind. God creates, God destroys, God builds, God tears down, God plants, God plucks up. In other words, life is in his hands. He is the one who forgives sins, absolutely, and he is the one who sends people to eternal, eternal, eternal condemnation should they insist upon that by rejecting the things that he has given them. So that leads us then into the text that we've got before us today, which again is Amos chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. I'm going to go ahead and read that right now. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. There's the text before us today, Pastor Agrotowitz. So in, in verse 7, maybe the place to start is, is just to do some nuts and bolts work with, with Cushites and Egypt and Philistines, Kaftor. What, what, what are we talking about? Who are these people? What do we know about them historically? Yeah, let's do it. Well, we, we know enough. The Cushites, that's also translated in uh, various translations to be Ethiopia, and it's going to be around the region of Egypt. And there are places in Scripture where it's treated really side by side with the word Egypt. So Isaiah 20, verses 3 and 5 say Egypt and Ethiopia. Ezekiel 30, verse 5 includes Ethiopia in the same breath as Egypt. So it's in that region. 
Now, when I was doing some digging on this word, uh, one scholar said that Cush would have been associated with the southernmost part of the known world because it's the region, again, south and just east of Egypt. Now, we have to remember, of course, if you look on a globe or a map, it's not the southernmost part. But in the known world, we can understand why they would have thought that, especially being that the Israelites have a history of being in Egypt and brought out of Egypt. So for them, that would have been a very southern locale. They didn't have Google Maps. And so in their vantage point, at least according to one scholar, that was like a perimeter, a very southernmost part. So that's that's Cush. And also, too, that it's around the area of Egypt. The reader, if you're an Israelite, or you're one hearing Amos preach, couldn't help but associate that area, that territory, with Egypt and that fantastic narrative that we find in, in the book of Exodus and God bringing the people out of the bondage of Egyptian tyranny. Uh, then you have uh, the, the, the Amorites. Okay, the Amorites, and that's also going to be translated as Syria sometimes, the so Syria or the Amorites, depending on what translation you have. But the Amorites, they were fierce enemies of the Israelites, and there's plenty of holy writ that talks about the Amorites, skirmishes in the northern kingdom. And there, it's also mentioned, Syria is also mentioned as one of the nations indicted by God in the front part of Amos. When the book of Amos begins, it's nailing a lot of nations, and Syria the Amorites, they're going to be one of the nations in God's crosshairs. Then you get the Philistines. And how can we hear the Philistines and not think about David and Goliath? So these nations, these areas, these are not very friendly nations and territories that would have aroused warm feelings amongst the Israelites when Amos is making a comparison between Cush, the area of Egypt, the southernmost part of the world, and the Amorites, who they, they had struggles and challenges with, and the Philistines, God is making a comparison. But in terms of nuts and bolts, you know, that, that's what we're dealing with here. You know, some hostile people with Israel, Amorites and the Philistines, and of course Cush being the area of Egyptian bondage. Really not a comfortable comparison if you're an Israelite. So he's, he's bringing up the, the farthest reaches of the earth. To that, that's the the Cushites, and then and also hostile areas of the earth, and and he's using these in particular as a comparison to his own people. What's the comparison that he's making? Right, that that I I am the source of life, and I give life, and I'm the one that controls the source and destiny of nations. So this would have been a great way to really knock down any prideful feelings in the Israelites should they be thinking we're God's chosen people and therefore we can live how we want. God loves us more. We are the apple of his eye, the center of his world. All these thoughts of pride, arrogance, complacency, and so forth. Here comes God saying, you're no different than them. I brought out the Cushites. I brought up the Philistines from Kaftor, some think that's the island of Crete. We don't know for sure. It's debated. I brought up the Syrians from Kerr. You're no different, O Israel, than other people. I am the source of all life. I create all people. Also, too, between the Philistines, the Amorites, Israel, and even Judah, all of humanity, we all have the same fundamental 
spiritual problem, and that is the problem of that sinful condition. And the only remedy for that sinful condition is the great I am, our Lord and our God, who ultimately saves in the sending of his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God is the source of our salvation as he is the source of life, and this is the point he's impressing upon the Israelites. So the idea in, in verse 7 is he, he brings up this matter of the Exodus. And so it's like the, like the Lord is telling the Israelites, remember what I did for you in the book of Exodus? I did that for your enemies too. I mean, is it, that, that's kind of the idea, and, and that's how it knocks them off of this pedestal. I mean, grammatic, grammatically, the comparisons are very striking, right? And uh, he did it to the Israelites, just bring them up out of Egypt and that whole story. But yeah, the Philistines came from somewhere. The Syrians came from Kerr. Now, of course, the Philistines and the Amorites, they're not Israel. They don't have the story that Israel does. And we're not told about how exactly God does this. Um, but the similarity here is enough to knock down and deflate the pride of Israel should they think maybe God loves us more, maybe we don't need him as much as the other nations do. That's the point and purpose of his preaching here, really just to level the playing field with God's law. You know, you think about to go to the New Testament, and as Israel, I mean, excuse me, as Jesus is, is going around in his ministry, He's going to encounter Samaritans, of course, but also Gentiles. People looked upon by the uh, more pure-of-heart Jews, shall we say, as being inferior. The Samaritans, half-breeds, Gentiles are unclean. So that same kind of thinking that these people over here, <laughs> they're not me, and therefore I am distinguished and different. In Jesus' ministry, we very clearly and quickly see uh, that's just not the case. Another text that comes to mind that maybe will provide some clarity on this, at least it did for me, you know, in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist is preaching, you know, here come the enemies, here come the Pharisees, and they come in Matthew chapter 3, and that's when John the Baptist, I mean, he, he knows they're up to no good, and he calls them a brood of vipers. And, you know, he goes on to say, uh, you know, don't, don't claim for yourself don't claim for yourself that you're, you're a child. Don't say, we have Abraham as a, our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Just as he raised up Israel from Egypt, he also raised up the Philistines from Kaphtor, and he raised up the Syrians or the Amorites from Kerr. Again, this idea of just making everybody on this equal playing field, we all have the problem of sin, and ultimately, it is God, it is God who makes us his children. I do think that that verse from Matthew 3 and, and how John preaches there is is helpful. And, and it, I mean, it, I think it ties in very nicely with Amos, especially, and we'll get to this in a bit, but how, how Amos brings up what the people were saying to themselves to comfort them. So so John does there in Matthew chapter 3. Maybe, maybe to, to, to phrase it in a in a more dogmatic way, one of the issues that Israel was having was they were, they were misusing the doctrine of election that, that they, they thought they were founding their election somehow within themselves rather than letting election being 
God's choice entirely of them, not because of who they were, but because of who he is and, and what he was planning to do for them in his son, Jesus Christ. Is that, is that another way to, to think about this, Pastor Grotowitz? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So I am the doctrine of election. God has elected me because of the blood that is coursing through my veins. Uh, my lineage, I can trace it back to Abraham. And since my blood is pure, therefore I am pure. And, and therefore, since I am part of the chosen favored nation, uh, I can somehow just live as I want and do as I want. You know, God throughout the Old Testament always demands faith to believe in him, to trust in him. From Genesis onward, even in Leviticus, when people are bringing sacrifices, I mean, they're doing that out of faith, or they should be doing that, out of faith in his word, declaring that sacrifice to count for the person and how it does. God's word is still the governing, overriding speech that declares a person who he or she is and what they have. And so it's it's never been a case of, since I'm elected and I have God's favor because of my blood, therefore I really don't have to believe. I can just kind of play along, live as I want to do, and I'll get in because of who I am. And I, I have heard, I've heard people who have, have claimed to be Jews in my own life uh, make, make what, I, what I think, I think they're joking, but I've always sensed a, a piece of truth into it. We're the chosen ones, you know, we're the chosen ones. And um, there, there was this, this one individual, and he was a drummer friend of mine, and, um, but a, a, a Jew, he, he claimed to be of Jewish lineage, and he would make that comment. And I think he did it half-jokingly, as I said, but also half-truthfully. So has that mindset gone away? You know, I'm tempted to say no. I haven't, of course, surveyed or looked at a lot of statistics, but... It is an argument that John the Baptist was going to deal with, and he did deal with it. Jesus is going to encounter it. We're seeing it here in the Old Testament, this abuse to think, because I am chosen and I have this bloodline, I'm part of Israel, everything's fine. And in the book of Amos, it, this, sinful, this sinful way of thinking really does manifest itself in this hedonistic, fulfilling of desire type of living that is just leading to a host of horrible, horrible sins. So we've, we've got about three and a half minutes here before the break. And so just to, to take that now then, so well, what about the church today? How, how might Christians still today fall into that same kind of thinking that that wrong use of election a while because of well, I mean, you know, you, you might have heard it, Pastor Goddard. I was confirmed at that church. What, what do you mean I, I'm, I'm not a member anymore, Pastor? How, how do we see that today? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sadly, it happens, even in our own church body. And I suppose it happens in a myriad of ways. You know, when someone comes and they're a visitor, you know, they—I've they, encountered this kind of recently with this one person. She came and— was, was quick to point out we weren't very friendly to her, quick to tell me that she is Missouri Synod Lutheran and, and very proud of it, and that she was confirmed. And she really wore that as, as a badge of honor. And I'm happy that she's confirmed. I'm happy that she was baptized. Does she really believe in these things? Does she believe in the promise of the baptism? Does she believe in her confirmation vows and still hold to them? 
And another question that floats through my mind, and in, 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 in these encounters, you'll have like a thousand different thoughts in, in 3.2 seconds just kind of flying through your mind. Um, but um, is this person faithful, and are they using these things as a source of false confidence? Meaning I was baptized, I was confirmed, and now I really don't have to go to church because I've quote-unquote graduated. I've been confirmed. And so this becomes a false part of their identity. And so they think that they're in the church, the box has been checked, and now they don't have to go, they don't have to listen, they can get a divorce or two, they may or may not hear the word, but all is well because they are quote-unquote in the church. Uh, Roman Catholicism might be another example where people think they're saved because they're in. They're in the church, they're in the one true church, they claim it for themselves, they don't go, they don't hear, and the overarching question in these cases that only God knows, because he is a searcher and seeker of hearts, do they believe? Do they, do they believe and trust in the things that he is giving and he, that the things that he is saying? Are they keeping, remembering the Sabbath by keeping it holy, by dwelling on the holy things every Sunday? And you know, when people give you the argument, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, that is a charade and a, a, a facade that people put up to cover their laziness, their slothfulness, and, sadly, their unbelief. Christians go where the Word is. They want to hear. They want to worship with fellow saints. They want to receive. If Christ says, I am here, and this bread and wine, we should run to those things. If Christ says, I am here in preaching, we should run to here. If Christ says, I am here in the waters of baptism, this is what I'm giving you, we should flee to these things. What faithful believer is going to hear this and say, I don't need it, or I have enough gospel, I don't need any more? It doesn't make any sense, and Christians who say those things while still claiming to be Christian, at the very least, it sends up a lot of red flags, and it's a deep, deep concern for any pastor because we begin to wonder, you know, why, why do you think you can live without these things? And if you were thinking you are in and you are saved and all is well because you were confirmed and that box was checked, and if your heart is void of faith, that's a, that's a pitiful condition to be in. And we, we, all of us need to be aware, all of us, pastors included, need to be aware of falling into that trap, of ultimately trusting in something else other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and seeking his word, always creating faith and confirming for us his promise that our sin is put away. We can't hear that too often, and to think we're saved by something else, um, that, that's a tragedy, idolatry, and it's, it's not going to save. Yeah, there is, there's room for all of us to examine our hearts to repent and, and turn once again to Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Monday, November 25th. We're looking at Amos chapter 9, verses 7 through 10 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz of Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 7, where the Lord reminds his people Israel that indeed he is the Lord of all nations. And just as he brought them out of Egypt, so he has taken care of even their enemies and, and brought them into their land as well. And so Israel can't just say, ah, look at us because of the blood flowing through our veins. We are safe. He doesn't allow that. And so then he continues into verse 8. And, and we get language that, that recalls something he said earlier in this chapter. His eyes are upon, uh, but rather than saying his people, he says the sinful kingdom. Is that referring to his own people there? That is referring to the outward structure that is the kingdom and his own people insofar as, you know, we're talking about Israelites here. They're absolutely in the crosshairs. The sinful kingdom, he's, again, the outward structures, the altars, the false places of worship. Bethel and Gilgal are both places of worship mentioned in Amos. The kingship, all these things, these structures, these, these foundations, really, they're going to fall. They're going to collapse. His eyes are upon it, and in very pointed language, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. So the walls are going to crumble. It's going to be bad. Destruction is coming. Um, but then this, this clause, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So when we say his people, uh, the believers, the believers shall be preserved. The remnant is going to be preserved. The church is always preserved and protected, even as the structures around us collapse. The earth melts away the word of God endures forever. And as our Lord lives, so do his people. So there is a glimmer of hope here when God says, I will not destroy the house of Jacob. I mean, even in the midst of this, God is patient and loving to remember his promise to Abraham. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not of the dead. And he will preserve his people in this trial. So for the believer, hearing Amos, living a repentant life, trusting in the Lord, this would have been comforting to know you will not be destroyed. Everything else is going to fall apart and collapse because of the sinfulness of the people. But those in the house, God's house, the house of Jacob, the true believers, they shall be spared. So there is some comfort here, even though the destruction the destruction is taken. It is it, the light is on that in the text? I would say. I mean, that that's the main point. This is this is very law-oriented preaching for a reason. However, you know, God is still merciful and kind to His people, i.e., His believers who look to Him for all things good. Hmm. So yeah, the the first the first two parts of that verse then. Are, are talking, I mean, we could maybe say the Assyrian conquest is, is what seems to be in view there when, when he says the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. And I, I like the way that you put it. These are the the outward things of the kingdom. So the the walls of Samaria, the altar that's there at, at Bethel, the the kingdom, this this line of kings, which is in the northern kingdom, you know, is, is several different dynasties, in fact, that are there. All of these things, that's what's going to be wiped out completely in in that Assyrian invasion in 722 BC. 
but there is that there is that glimmer of hope and and there hasn't been a lot of glimmers of hope in the book of Amos it's going to shine through very clearly in the verses that will follow today's text but but there is a, a glimmer of hope there and and I I think you've, you've started to answer the question, but, but I want you to, to dig into it just a, a little bit more then. How is it that the Lord's not going to utterly destroy the house of Jacob? Everything that he's said so far sure seems like that's what he's planning on doing. Where does this glimmer of hope come from? Great question. And I think the answer is the glimmer of hope is in the preaching itself and that promise therein where God says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Again, meaning it will not be wiped off the map. That prophetic word right there and that proclamation is hope going forth that the believer would hear and say, Amen. The, the lineage leading to the Christ will ultimately go on. The house of Jacob will continue to stand. Now, it could be that believers believers would, would fall in the battle. And, you know, I, I have a reason to believe that that happened. That the Assyrians, they're going to come. They're going to decimate everything. And they're gonna be, there's going to be some collateral damage. I mean, there are going to be some believers caught up in this, and they will die. And yet, they have all the confidence in the world, as does every believer, that their death only leads to life eternal. It's a portal to the eternal heaven that our Lord promises to those who love, fear, and trust in Him. So there, there's that element for the believer listening to this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, God will preserve that lineage, that line leading to the Messiah. That's another way He's going to keep this going, even though there's destruction all around, and that's all you see. We are to look to God's promises that He's not going to destroy the house of Jacob. And a correlation to all of this is Matthew 16, at least in my mind, when Jesus says, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And we can ask the same question. How? I mean, look around. Look at the, the data. Look at the statistics. You, can't, you almost cannot go to a conference without somebody standing up there and quoting church statistics showing, oh my gosh, it's bad. Oh, denominations, mainline denominations, their attendance is in free fall. Oh, what are we going to do? We've got to reach the lost, so forth. And there seems to be this sense of panic. And yet, we look at Matthew 16, the church cannot shrink. The church only grows. Jesus doesn't say, I will destroy it. He says, I will build it. We may not see it. We see empty pews, aging congregations, a society that seems to become more and more unhinged from natural law every day as it slips further and deeper into serious decadence and decay. And yet for us, our glimmer of hope is in the Holy Word of God. I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. It may seem that way, and I'm sure for many Israelites, as they saw the military get wiped out, the altar is destroyed. Everything goes to ruins. And that's what they're seeing with their senses. Their hope would have been the word. No, we're not all dead. The house of Jacob, it will stand. God's promise to make Abraham a father of many nations 
is not going to cease with this destruction. It's going to go on. And that would have been the hope for believer, as it is to us today, as we look around and see many things to despair over, Christ will continue to build his church. Even if we can't see it, he will do it. And that's comforting enough for us. Yeah, the the promise of God that he's made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, right? That's that's who's referenced here. I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. This is how he is able to speak this glimmer of hope here that will shine forth in, in just a few verses. But but that glimmer of hope right now in the midst of all this destruction, that God's promise to to make a great nation out of Abraham, to bring the seed of the woman into the world, that promise will not fail his people's idolatry cannot stop it from happening. His own wrath being poured out against that idolatry cannot stop it from happening. It it will happen. The, the house of Jacob will not be utterly destroyed. The Lord will preserve for himself a remnant, the church, his faithful ones who who cling to this promise that they've got here. So so that then takes us then into to verse nine, Pastor Grotowitz. And and again, we we get this theme of of shaking coming up. We've seen this throughout the book of Amos. It, it even happens right in the first verse where there's an earthquake referenced right away. We, we've seen it come up time and time again in the book of Amos. How does the, the shaking play out in verse 9? Okay, well, we can't rule out that a major earthquake certainly could happen. And yes, it is mentioned two years before the earthquake, and that's treated as a historic event. And whenever there is an earthquake, I mean, it... I've never the, the closest thing I've ever I've, I've suffered through a couple of tremors and that's it, but I can only imagine a massive earthquake happening and shaking, and I think we have every reason again in Amos to treat this as a historical credible event that had to have been bad enough when everything is shaking and walls are falling and things are crumbling down, but the shaking we can also see that as when the nation when the, the nation of Assyria comes. Here comes a foreign nation, and it's going to strip away all these things you have been trusting in. Boy, that's going to shake things up quite a bit. Now, the metaphor here about shaking the house of Israel really takes on its full expression. And in the latter, the second part of verse 9, if one shakes with the sea, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Uh, this is what the ESV says. Now, the, the New King James kind of reverses it to say no small grain, uh, no, uh, yes, not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Again, whereas the ESV says no pebble shall fall to the ground. There's a little bit of ambiguity on it. I think the ESV has it right. No pebble shall fall. So this would mean if you've got a sieve and you're shaking it, you're catching all the pebbles, but all the good grain falls through. That sounds a lot like the Christian life. You know, who gets through? Who gets through the door? Who gets through the gate? Well, that would be the the believer, while the ones who are kept out of heaven, the ones that don't get through, are the ones who reject. They don't have the right wedding garment. That comes from one of Jesus' parables. They have rejected the things that God has given them, his forgiveness, his love, his steadfast love, his mercy that we have through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... The shaking, earthquake, you know, an event in creation, the shaking of this mighty, massive, you know, Assyrian force coming, you know, that had to have just shaken them in so many ways to look out and see. I was teaching religion class this morning, and we were talking about Pharaoh going through the Exodus and all these plagues, and 
you know, the one plague we were talking about was the plague of hail, you know, coming down, and it's just it's just decimating livestock, really making a mess of things. And Pharaoh had this really bad habit. A plague would happen, and then he would want to relent. Okay, so the flies come. Oh, take the flies away. The hail comes. Oh, take the fl- take the hail away. You know, I'll be good. Uh, the Lord is righteous. Oh, I'll let the people go. And then as soon as these things stop, he changes his mind. Ah, he, Pharaoh would harden his heart, and it would become just really stiff, and he wouldn't do what he should have been doing. And I brought up a comparison to uh, 9-11, where after 9-11, what happens to church attendance? And I asked the kids this, and a couple of them got it. They said, well, it, it went up. And I said, that's exactly right. Whenever something happens to the nation, it does have a, a different bearing on us because it happened at home. I mean, who would have thought two jumbo jets could crash into a couple of world towers? Well, it happened. And for a while, church attendance after that looked really good. You started seeing more unity events and ceremonies and whatnot. Um, I'm not at all saying they were faithfully done, but at, at the very least, outwardly, it does show people you know, trying to come together and in a fragmented country that's not altogether bad. But then what happens? Well, things begin to get back to normal. People settle back down, and, and we're kind of back to our own ways. The church attendance is not sustained. If you're in Israel and I mean, you're living a life of luxury. I mean, these are people, they're composing songs like David, says Israel. They drink wine from bowls. There's talking here, they're lying on beds of ivory. They stretch themselves out on the couches. They're eating lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. They're gorging on meat. I mean, who drinks wine from bowls? My bed isn't made of ivory. This is some luxurious, opulent living. There's also talking here about just really mistreating other people and, and uh, you know, getting things from other people through mistreatment and oppression. And this sinful way of living, it's just hitting all strata of society. And then one day, you look out over the horizon, and what do you see? An army. And not just any army, but an army that is able to knock out a whole nation coming towards you. And this is literally going to hit home. That would have shaken the people. And that's frankly, that's the point, that they would be shaken out of their stupor, put down the wine bowls, get off your ivory bed, get off the couch, put down the lamb, repent of your sin, and see what's coming. So a lot of ways to look at that. And again, always a call for us to examine, repent, and make sure we're not in the same trap that that befell Israel. So the the shaking that's happening in verse nine is another example of. I mean, I think you you even brought up one of these parables of Jesus. You, you've got a division of people going on here, which would would indicate. A, a little bit, again, a glimmer of hope as, as we had in verse 8 for those who, who are divided with the, the sheep rather than the goats. But it, but it sounds like the, the main emphasis here is on the matter of the division and focusing on the judgment of those who would end up with the, the goats, right? Sure. Yes, yes. There are some who get through, okay? The pebbles don't fall, but that implies that others get through. There are the sheep and there are the goats. And for an, an attentive hearer of Amos, 
they would catch this. But okay, there are pebbles who get caught. I don't want to be a pebble. You know, how should I be? I want to be grain. And that question right there, that's the right question. You know, who am I before God? Well, now you're thinking. Now you're asking the right question, as opposed to being blind to it all and not caring. So, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think you can still catch a glimmer of hope that there is a sieve, meaning that means God is making some sort of division. The next question is, well, what side am I on? How do I get to the right side? And these are very basic questions, but they're not silly questions. Whenever someone starts questioning, wondering who they are, you know, that's at least um, the first step in the right direction. And once a person, by the grace of God, realizes I'm messing up and repents of their sin, all credit goes to our Lord who does convert these hearts and gives them eyes to see their sinful condition. And God be praised for those pebbles who become grain, the ones who do get through and access heaven. This is always the Lord's work, and I mean, we thank him for it. So even in the midst of this very law-oriented preaching, God isn't exactly excluding the believer in the sense that he's not addressing him as well. He is, and an acute hearer would pick up on that, I would think. Yeah, yeah. So, but again, the the focus here primarily is is not on those who are asking those simple questions, but rather those who, who aren't asking those questions and, and living in false security. And so the, the text closes with the Lord saying, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who are saying disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. So Pastor Agradowitz, the I think one of the questions that comes to my mind, at least, is who are all the sinners of my people? Aren't we all sinners? Yeah, sure, sure, right. All the sinners of my people, the ones who continue in their sin, the ones who are practicing sin. And here, the context, the grammar, the narrative makes it abundantly clear that the sinner here, the one who says no disaster shall overtake us, that is the exact opposite of faithful living. Um, The baptized believer is always warned to be vigilant. Our eyes need to be open. We don't want to be caught We don't want to be one of the virgins who doesn't have oil when our Lord comes. Point being, we need to be ready. Uh, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. So watch and pray. We need to watch. We need to pray. And the exact opposite of that is to think, ah, no disaster shall overcome us. The person who says that is that person living, that sinner living in false security, as opposed to the sinner and saint who recognizes I have a sinful condition. It is prone to laziness and sloth. Lord, help me in this matter. Uh, Forgive me of this sin and send thy spirit that I would do better. That is much more in line with vigilant living than the person saying, ah, no disaster is going to come upon us. When I read that verse, it reminded me a lot of Jeremiah 23, where he's dealing with some, some false prophets who say, ah, no evil shall come upon you. Man, that's what we like to hear. No evil, no problem. No law, no sin. That really sets a person up to live in secure living. This is why the prosperity preachers are so successful, because they promise money and wealth and blessing and everything's going to be fine. And that's just preaching that is making a life ripe for secure living 
not living with that sharpness and awareness that sin is always a big deal. Judgment is always a real thing. The devil is not a myth. And he's not just some cute, cuddly character with horns and a pitchfork. He wants to devour you. He wants to kill you. He wants you for himself. He does not want you in the kingdom of righteousness, and he will do whatever he can to get you in his side. We need to be alert of these things and and repent. And Luther, in his small catechism, when he's talking about the meanings to the, the commandments, brilliantly begins, we should fear and love, fear and love, and so forth. I mean, the fear of God is a reverent fear acknowledging we are sinful people, and we need his mercy and his deliverance from our condition. We need his protection from the devil. Hence the reason, as baptized believers, we should go to church whenever we can. We should worship and be with the saints whenever we can, because sin, death, and the devil, they are a real thing. As opposed to what Amos is dealing with, which is the sinner who thinks nothing's going to happen, no evil, no disaster. Eh, life is good. <laughs> Give me my bowl of wine and leave me alone. You know, that, that's what's going on here. You know, if we have some time, I wouldn't mind talking about some of the, the, the sins of the people. And maybe we're out of time, and I probably should have done this up front. But well, I mean, you, you, got, you got about four and a half minutes left. And so it, it might be good just to, to address, you know, all the sinners of my people. Well, what were some of those sins that were coming up? Yeah, and if, and if a hearer thinks I should have done this up front, I think they're right. But we'll do the best we can. Yeah, so Amos starts out, and he, he's, he's preaching the Lord is giving his word through Amos, to be clear. He's going to hit Syria. He's going to hit Gaza. He's going to hit Tyre. He's going to hit the, the Ammonites, Edom, Moab, Judah. And then comes the northern kingdom. And, by the way, the northern kingdom is the first to fall between Israel and Judah. I mean, their sins are just really grotesque. So, here's an example. In verse chapter 2, verse 6, for three transgressions of Israel and for four... You know, Amos uses this three plus four type of motif. A couple of things there. Three plus four makes seven, so maybe he's trying to make the point. This is just a real complete, disastrous, sinful state of the people. Or this kind of stair step three plus four, meaning the sins just keep on increasing and increasing. I think both interpretations are valid. For three or four transgression, transgressions, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. So there is some real oppression, and it sounds like that's almost a top-down, perhaps maybe a political oppression, using the poor to get what you want. Uh, abusing, afflicting the needy for sandals. They trample the head of the poor to the dust of the earth, and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. So these are not people loving and caring for their neighbor and being concerned, but they're abusing the poor and the afflicted to get what they want. But then it gets even worse. A man and his father go into the same girl. So that my holy name is profaned, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. These are horrific sexual sins when a father and a son have the same woman. That is bad enough. 
But to do it by an altar in a place of worship, was there some sort of fertility cult going on or a fertility goddess that they were worshiping? Certainly possible, but these are sexual sins that do sound like they're taking place in a place of worship. My holy name is profaned. I mean, could, could it be this was happening in a religious context where these things were happening? We can't rule it out. That's how far that they have fallen in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So taking wine from people for some sort of fine and then only to drink it and indulge, this is horrific. Also, these people do not want the prophets to preach. They want Amos to be quiet. They don't want to hear the prophetic word of God. They don't want to hear basically what they're doing is sinful and wicked I mentioned earlier, too, that along with oppression and affliction and these horrible sexual sins, okay, and saying, you shall not prophesy, that's verse 12, um, they were drinking bowls of wine, living this opulent, you know, ivory beds and so forth, a very hedonistic, doing what I want, fulfilling desires, kicking the feet up, gorging, satisfying the flesh in whatever way possible, while being just ignorant of what is coming down the pipe. Now, the king has not helped matters. I said his name is Jeroboam, son of Joash. And if you go back into First and Second Kings, okay, Second Kings chapter 14 talks about Jeroboam, son of Joash. And one of the things he does, he doesn't turn back, turn away from the Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Remember, he was the first one in the northern kingdom. And so you ask, well, what did Jeroboam, son of Nebat, do? Well, he built altars, and not just any altar, but he decides he's going to erect a couple of golden calves. And those are going to be the gods of Israel. And you read that text in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, excuse me, 1 Kings, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 14, and you just want to blow your top and say, hello, golden calves, what are you doing? Did you not read uh, the story of Exodus I mean, did you not read about what happened there on the mountain and that whole story in Exodus chapter 32? And I think that is extremely terrible to forget your own history as a people. Well, it happens. He makes a couple of golden calves, and he will say to them, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's first, the first Kings 12, verse 28. And again, as I said, when you hear about Jeroboam, son of Joash, again, that's the, the king that Amos is serving under, okay? We hear about him. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Fish those from the those were now. Pastor Pastor Grotowitz. We are just about out of time, and and I appreciate all your wisdom. It's, it's great. And those oh. those were those were the sins that that they were not repenting of. And this text calls the people to repent. That's the only way that they're going to hear the good news that Amos has for them in the next few verses. you got to come back tomorrow to hear that today. We've been looking at Amos chapter 9, verses 7 through 10 with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz of Grace Lutheran Church in Brenham, Texas. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the day with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.